Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, the great Andy Serkis on his new role as the uber villain in the new Luther movie, Luther Fallen Son. Acting legends James Cosmo and Breed Brennan on their gorgeous new love story about finding love in later life called My Sailor, My Love. Plus, investigative journalist Mick Clifford chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on News Talk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. This week, this guy returned. You have removed your helmet. What's worse, you did so of your own free will. You are no longer Mandalorian. The creed teaches us of redemption. Redemption is no longer possible since the destruction of our homeworld. But what if the minds of Mandalore still exist? Now, that was a clip, of course, of The Mandalorian, which landed on Disney this week on the 1st of March. There's one episode there. I kindly was sent another one, so I've seen the first two. Pedro Pascal returns as Mando, The Mandalorian. Grogu is back, the reunited, uh, the bounty hunter who's, a, who's played by Pedro Pascal, is no longer a Mandalorian because if you've been following this, he had removed his face mask to Baby Yoda. So his new quest in this series is to find atonement on the poison planet of Mandalore and to rejoin this Mandalorian cult, which is, you know, the biggest part of his life, along with Baby Yoda. Now, if you know nothing of Star Wars, what I've just said there is akin to a foreign language, and I get that. But if you are a Star Wars fan, and particularly a fan of the new, I suppose, enhanced version of the TV shows that Disney have been running with the Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett, and this kind of continuation of the story. Well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there was two seasons of The Mandalorian previously, and his story featured in the pretty ropey, as time has shown us, uh, the Book of Boba Fett story. Or when The Mandalorian first dropped a couple of years ago, the first season, I remember saying, this is the best piece of Star Wars stuff since the return of the Jedi. And the first season and the second one were were amazing. Uh, So we're back with a third one. And the story's an interesting one where he's going to reclaim his Mandalorianness. Baby Yoda, Grogu is back. And the first two episodes are very good. Uh, the only thing is, and I, I've probably said this to before about various Star Wars things, including Andor, which was very good, that there's just a feeling that the well is being you know, too much water has been taken from the well. Uh, I was scroping with a well analogy there, but that maybe they're plundering the Star Wars universe too much. There was a friend of mine who works in here and I sent him a message saying, happy Mandalorian day. And he was kind of like saying, ah, I'm not bothered, you know, uh, too much has happened. Now, the thing is, the new season so far based on two episodes is very good. And I wonder is my slight weariness of the whole franchise just because I'm getting older because my 10 year old was in heaven that it was back and, and was saying, have you not got any more episodes? That's a whole other story. They, they, they're not into things dropping every weekly or dropping weekly. So maybe, you know, my world weariness with the Star Wars universe is just me. It may not be you. Uh, and I think on its own terms so far, Mandalorian season three is very good. So I can't really complain, I guess, is what I'm saying. Let me know if you might have watched the first episode. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email us screentime at newstalk.com. Now to another world entirely. Detective Superintendent Shank. We need to know where he is. Look, I know he's in prison. Except he's not in prison. He's not. 
You promised me you could help. You know what they did to my son. I need to stop this man. I'm still a copper. Not anymore. And if you refuse to stand down, tactical unit will shoot you dead. <laughs> Something's coming. Now, that was a clip of Luther, the Fallen Son. Now, Luther is an incredibly popular TV show that stars Idris Elba on the BBC. And Netflix have now made a movie about it, which was in cinemas briefly, but is landing on Netflix on March 10th. Luther, as you know, as I said, a BBC series, I think Idris, I think he got 11 Emmy nominations over the year. Idris Elba plays a policeman, an unorthodox policeman. And as the movie begins, Luther, The Fallen Son, it's the continuation of this Luther story, reimagined, I suppose, for film. A gruesome serial killer, played by Andy Serkis, is terrorising London, while brilliant but disgraced detective Luther John Luther sits behind bars, haunted by his failure to capture the cyber psychopath who now taunts him. Luther decides to break out of prison to finish the job by any means necessary. And this psycho killer, as we call him, is sending Luther weird messages in prison. The killer is played by Andy Serkis and he's brilliant as the villain. He really is a nasty piece of work in this and there's a whole story about the internet in it as well which I won't go into because it might give a bit of a spoiler because you'll probably watch it on Netflix on March 10th. As I say Andy Serkis plays the villain uh, David Robbery in this and he's brilliant. Andy Serkis is an amazing actor. I mean for a lot of people he's known for his motion capture work where he played Gollum in Lord of the Rings and that whole trilogy later in The Hobbit. He played Snook in some of the Star Wars movies. He's been apes. He's been King Kong. He's kind of the master of this stop motion or motion capture work. But he's also a very serious dramatic actor as he shows in this, like without any gadgets or, or, you know, paraphernalia to to go with the acting, like playing Ian Drury in Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, that great biopic, rock biopic of sorts. He's an amazing actor and has a lot to say. And I had a chat with him about his role in Luther and a lot more besides Hi, Andy. How are you? Hello, mate. How are you? Very well. So listen, you know, I was watching your portrayal of the villain and I, you know, wanted to punch you. Uh, Like I really (laughs) hated you by the end of it. So I suppose as an acting role, though, that's mission accomplished for you, right? Because that's, I'm assuming, what you want the reaction of viewers to be. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I mean, I, yes, ultimately, because you know he's not a he's not a nice human being, but and he gets his comeuppance. But at the same time, you know, it's sort of the job of an actor, I guess, to try and humanise him to a certain degree, mm. so that so that we we don't sort of ultimately separate ourselves and think that we we are not capable of. You know, I think it's a very dangerous thing to sort of assume that we don't ever have dark thoughts. I mean, I was just talking earlier about, um, you know, our fascination with true crime and, and you know, kind of almost a sort of morbid sense of, uh, you know, we like to watch stuff that is so mm. dark at the moment. And it, that it, it, it's an interesting kind of indicator is where where society is, especially in a kind of an environment. I mean, David Roby's environment is is all about 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 being desensitized by by the internet by yeah you know by by being one step removed from society i suppose but but i suppose you know it's what i suppose what i'm getting at is part of the reason i took the role was to uh, to to ask the question and the debate about about how we've chosen we've chosen a, a kind of uh a way of being, a kind of a, a way of existing, where we are, we're we're happy to be desensitized. You know, we we can watch we can watch horrible things and actually not feel anything. Yeah, uh, do you know what I mean? I mean, absolutely. Whether it's the news or or whether it's so, it's sort of asking. It is a debate in a sense. The, mm. the part is 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 a, it does ask questions. So so I do. It, I suppose when I took the role, it was to have 
people go away thinking about that. Yeah, well. yeah. Well, well, mission, mission accomplished in that way as well. And and it's not a criticism to say I wanted to punch you. I, I think, <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I didn't think want to take the role because I thought he was horrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but on that, and maybe this sounds like a naive question, but when you spend six weeks or however long you were filming this for, and you're in the role of someone who who is so dark and complicated, I mean, this is probably a question of every part, but particularly when it's this dark, does it take a while to to get out of that headspace? And I know you might, you know, counteract with the Laurence Olivier thing. It's called acting, darling. But I, I just wonder, okay. does it does it take a while to rebalance yourself after being this dark for a while? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, whatever role you take, there's always a decompression period. Um, uh, I, I don't. I mean, I actually do believe that you've tricked your body and your mind mm. in, in in taking on the role. You've you've tricked yourself into being this other person and and chemically changed yourself because you've made. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah. You've le- literally gone through the motions of doing what that character does. So there's always, for me, there is always, always a, a sort of a decompression period where you where you you sort of have to, and especially if you. If, if you kind of go for it, especially if you're kind of viscerally really oh, going for it and sort of using techniques to get into character mm. in, a, in, in, a, in a way that's hopefully going to resonate, you know, so it's so, yeah, I mean, it does take time. It's a short answer. Yes, yeah, it does take time to, to, uh, to climb out of especially a dark hole like David Roby. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A dark <laughs> hole like David Roby. Uh, listen, there's great fight scenes in it as well uh, and, and nicely choreographed and all. Would who would who would uh, win in a fight in real life between you and Idris? Oh, I would absolutely hands down. There's no, there's absolutely no question. Uh, no, Idris would flatten me because he is also, apart from being multi-talented and brilliant at so many things, he's also a very talented kickboxer, which I found out while we were doing okay. the fight sequences. Um, he, 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 no, he's really, yeah, he's pretty strong. But I have to say, I did give him a good run for his money because yeah. he was, you know. <laughs> I got that I sense. Know. I, 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 you know, and actually the stunt team were fantastic. I, they were really, really amazing. And they work in a very unique way in that, in that you're not just given a bunch of moves to do. Mm. It was very much from character. And so we did a lot of stunt rehearsals, which were all about them trying to find out from me what David Roby's fight style would be, okay. which is, which is kind of almost uh, dispassionate and not, and sort of not, you, you, kind of emotionally connected in a way it's quite cold yeah. and so it's it, it sort of that was a really interesting thing you know it's it's so rather than sort of showing how strong that you are it's sort of like the short jabs and the sort of yeah like slicing the slicing and dicing you know choosing opportune moments because you mm. can sum up, sum up your prey so it's more the what was brilliant i suppose is the psychological approach from the stunt team was really really great on this yeah, no, the, the fight scenes are great. And you're right there. Now that you say it like that, they're not your normal bang wallop kind of thing. You know, you can, no. you can really, you can really see that in it. Listen, my, one of my favorite roles of yours was when you played Ian Jury. Uh, oh. And I, it reminds me of some ways in another musical, and I won't call it a biopic, but the one about Ian Curtis control and what they both have in common is that they're somewhat unusual. They don't, they don't go the normal, rock star biopic BS Ruth kind of, you know, and yeah, I, I yeah. like those movies, but there, there was a different take on the life. Ian Jury, who I was, I was a great admirer of died in, 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 at the turn of the millennium. So you guys yeah. made that 10 years later, you, you got him on the money people said, and it seemed that way to me. Had you ever met him though? I had actually, um, wow. I, I had the great fortune to be rehearsing a play um, which was, well, we were workshopping a play based on, do you remember Sue Townsend's book, The Queen and I? Yes. About the, about the, about the royal family being rehoused on a council estate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she wrote that book. And then, and then we, were, we were workshopping that as a play, um, Max Stafford Clark at the Royal, royal, uh, royal Court. And Ian was writing the music for it. So I actually got to meet him, t- t- you know, before, and that was in the uh, kind of early 90s. I okay. Think. 
and so and it, so that was amazing but also the, the other the, and he was i mean he was very ill at the time actually and yeah. uh, you know he was he was quite curmudgeonly and a bit crotchety <laughs> at that time which is you know uh, so I'm glad that you like the fact that we showed a kind of warts and all yeah. sort of approach to the character because because that was the other thing we spent a, I spent a lot of time with Baxter his son and Jemima his daughter and yeah. they were very very um, they were excellent at being part of the script writing process they opened up his lock up and you know I actually wore some of his clothes for the film so, so they they okay. were really they were really kind of part of the process and and I remember when when we first showed them the script they. They, they, they. Well, I can't repeat it on on radio, but they said he was he was much more of a than than you've portrayed him. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So, so you you could don't be afraid of going down the road, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. And we wanted to do a version of him which was sort of a, a kind of an a, 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 as he was a poet and a yes. kind of abstract artist. We wanted to do a version which kind of examined that part of his life as opposed to just doing your you know the sort of rags to riches or whatever yeah. you know fame, fame sort of storytelling of a, of a rock biopic it was much yeah. more about about his psychology i think yeah the second movie i saw in the cinema when i was four was uh the empire strikes back the first book i ever remember reading and loving properly loving and being obsessed with was lord of the rings and wow. there are a million people millions of people like me particularly probably men in their 40s all over the world who probably ask you questions all day long about star wars and lord of the rings <laughs> i'm just wondering now that you've you're out of those worlds for now I know you've done audio books and you did a marvelous reading of the Hobbit during lockdown and all, but the fandom of both those things, were, were you surprised by that when, when you, when you were front and center in them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one could prepare you for, uh, you know, I mean, I remember before Lord of the Rings started, some, someone said, look, there, there are two, there's basically two halves of the world, the people who have read Lord of the Rings and two and, and the people who haven't, you know, and so you realize just what reach those novels had, yeah. how, how important they were. And then as we were making the movies, you were just, we were constantly aware of the fan base and, and, uh, you, you know, uh, and, 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 and their support of the movies as well was mm. really felt. And Peter Jackson was very, really wanted to bring them along for the ride. And I think that's part of the success of those movies was that they all felt part of the family. You know, he yeah. opened it up and that, and that everyone was included. And yeah. he, he was, he really sort of broke the mold in terms of the relationship of studio movies to an audience in, in that, you know, up to that point, people, you know, people always wanted to guard their secrets and hold things close to their chest. Whereas he was very much, Let's share everything. Let's make yeah. them feel part of the process. We're going to be with them a long time. So, so, so I think it, yeah, I mean, we, we, yeah for sure became that became part of 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 the filmmaking in a way. Mm. And they loved all the you know behind the scenes and the DVDs mm -hmm. and they yeah. someone quote them they quote them back at you. you know, really <laughs> I well. can imagine, yeah. You know, scenes that they've seen broken down and they know all about the miniatures and how they were created and they know all about the locations and it's phenomenal to, to have that sort of level of uh, understanding and, and love for the, for yeah. the source material. It, and, it commands yeah. a lot of love. Sorry, I cut across you. But Finally, then, if I could just ask you, and I need to let you go, then you're you're well known for your huge work in motion capture. I'm just wondering, we have this conversation on this show regularly with, with different actors and actresses about this idea of, you know, if someone is gay, if someone is deaf, if someone is, you know, insert whatever, that this person who plays them should be the same or should they not be? Should they be just acting? And I'm sure you're well aware of this debate that's raging is probably oh, yeah. overstating it, but but it's going on at the moment and we'll probably go on more. So I'm wondering, is motion capture a blessing or a curse for that? Because in one way, it means you can play so many more things, but yet maybe it's flying in the face of getting people who are actually the way people are being portrayed. So I'm just wondering quickly what your sense of that is. Well, it's a really, really apposite and interesting question that I'm sort of dealing with on a daily basis because it because I've always maintained that performance capture allows you to play anything regardless mm -hmm. of the colour of your skin, your yeah. sex, how 
big or small you are what you know it, it's it's it really is the the end of typecasting and it's also the the you know the ability to inhabit any creature not just human being of course but creature yeah. it, whatever whatever it is yeah. inanimate object if you want <laughs> you know so 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 it to have a tool the 21st century actors tool that allows you to do that opens up a huge debate especially in current times about equal representation mm. and about so on and so you know the things that you're talking about and and so it is something that's on my mind all the time and I, I have debates and talks with actors all the time people of color you know you know you know other um, you know who identify in different ways um, in, I have so many discussions about this because because for me you know, the the art of acting for me has always been about the about empathy and the ability to walk in someone else's shoes to mm -hmm. shine a light on a, on a character. Now, now, wh where I think where I th what I do think is important is is that it, and and I can't state this enough. You know, there there has not been a level playing field for years, yeah. and most people have not had the opportunity. And you know, uh, you know, white straight actors, if you like, have been. Uh, playing roles which now are considered probably you know unsuitable and because because they don't allow a huge part of the population to have to have that access to those roles and i completely uh, completely agree with that of course having said that i do in in terms of like you say this technology allowing you to become anything mm -hmm. i think it's i think you, you and i ask you know I, I as i say i'm constantly having this debate mm -hmm. with people about about you know do you think um i won't name names but but, but you know black actors could you know do do you think you could play abraham lincoln yeah a lot of them say you know using performance capture technology and photogrammetry yes i do think i should be able to play that but but now is not the time for it to be the other way around and that's yeah. that's that that's the truth of it when, when there is a level playing field when there is equal representation when anybody can really play anything then i think then we go back to early forms of storytelling where you you know going back to you know shamanism and, and early forms of storytelling where where people got up and became other characters i mean i've made i've made an entire career out of doing that yeah but i but i but i think it would be the wrong time for me to i had a conversation with an actor saying if you could play abraham lincoln do you think i could play martin luther king using performance capture and of course the answer is no not now because that's just yeah it would be deemed inappropriate but there is a tool that is a tool that is, um, you know, and, and as I mean, I'm always looking forward to the future in terms of next generation storytelling. We're living in a world where we have deep fake, where we can have digital resurrection. Mm -hmm. We can bring back actors who have died back to life. You know, there's all sorts of kind of political ramifications and social kind of ramifications about the use of this technology. Um, but as long as it's used at the end of the day, as long as it's used, and I hope, you know, it always will be used for good and not mm -hmm. bad. I mean, obviously, whatever whatever's created has the potential to be used for good or bad. You yeah. Know, whether it's med medicine, science, technology, uh, whatever it is. Um, but I do think I absolutely fundamentally believe that this should increase the ability for actors to to play things that they wouldn't normally be considered for. Yeah. You know? So yeah. if you think of it in terms of now a, a form of digital makeup to make you look older or younger like in the irishman or to make you you know a different scale me playing king kong or whatever it is whatever yeah. it is you know that that having that tool and now we have blind casting in theater you know we've seen hamilton bridgerton mm -hmm. we've seen with i think what what needs to change is the early stages of 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 the process so that the stories that are being told provide a platform for equal representation that's where that's where it needs to start and yeah. then i think eventually i do think that that this technology will allow people to have a real freedom in, yeah. in terms of the roles they choose well said well listen i could talk to you all day but the nice people of netflix need to pass you on to someone else <laughs> andy it's lovely to talk to you and the best of luck in whatever you do in the future Thank you, John. Nice to, nice to meet you. Andy Circus there discussing what motion capture might do for equal representation in Hollywood and his role in Luther, The Fallen Son, which will be on Netflix from March 10th. Up next, James Cosmo, MBE.
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now opening next week in Irish cinemas is a gorgeous movie called My Sailor, My Love. It's from the Finnish director, Klaus Harrow. And it sees two people uh, come together, James Cosmo and Breed Brennan. James Cosmo plays this very isolated, somewhat cranky man living in a house by himself. It was filmed in Ackle by the sea living a kind of lonely life his daughter deeply concerned about him played by Catherine Walker comes to visit him and attempts to help him because he seems to be struggling to manage by himself and is somewhat lost in his sailing past he was a sailor she hires Breed Brennan and Breed Brennan works as I guess a housekeeper for him uh, and he initially wants nothing to do with her but they form a bond and a romance forms and it's a romance that reaps huge dividends for them and goes in a certain direction that I won't give away and it's a lovely movie that I thought I knew what it was going to be but it was something a lot different than I expected it's set in Ackle but it's not really set anywhere it's kind of a universal story about love and possible redemption possible I say in later life now as I say it stars James Cosmo who has been in 130 movies he has an MBE you will know him from all sorts of things if you're a Game of Thrones fan he was the old bear Jor Mormont he was in train spotting he's that poor guy who gets something horrible spread all over him when one of the characters come down after an accident in the bed he was in Braveheart you you know this guy. Even if your name, his name is not that familiar to him, he's been in so many things. You have seen him in lots of things. He stars opposite Breed Brennan, who was in Brooklyn. She was in a great Irish movie last year called Dinan with Peter Coonan. She was in Cracker a long time ago, Northern Irish actress. And I went to see them in a hotel earlier in the week to chat to them about My Sailor, My Love and their very varied acting careers. So Breed, if I can start with you, you know, wrongly, I was going to say rightly or wrongly, but wrongly, I would suggest love stories, romantic comedy, stories of people falling in and out of love generally tend to be with people in their 20s, sometimes in their 30s. But people getting into, you know, you're still relatively young, both of you, but we don't see that many love stories with people in their 60s and beyond. I presume that was one of the attractions of this for you. Like, not that you think about representation every time you take a role, but that was probably in the back of your head that this is a good thing. Well, definitely that, but it it didn't that didn't jump out at me actually because it's quite a um, complex story. The whole story is quite complex. Mm. So, um, almost foremost is the uh, story of family and difficult relationships and the history of those relationships, and then uh, not just for Howard's character, but also for my own character who has a history of not having having had a. A very good marriage, and but it's um, it 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 sort of opens out in the telling of the story. So it's not just one story. When you first read it, you're not aware that it is just one story or a love story. Mm. But I was very drawn to the idea that these two people find companionship um, against the odds, you might say, yeah. but and love. Mm. Um, and that is extremely attractive and I have to say persuaded me uh, no problem at the yes. very beginning when I first saw it. Yeah, James, one of the things that I thought was interesting was for certainly a large part of the first salvo of the movie, mm. you don't have to say much. You have to do a lot of acting, but you don't have to say a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a challenge or an interesting space to be in as an actor? Oh, no, I, th- I think uh, it was very interesting that... that that Howard is, has, or has become a very taciturn man. He's sort of mm. ossified in this mausoleum mm. of a house. But there are sparks now and then when you see him talking and telling stories to the children. You know, you, you get a glimpse of what Howard had been mm. uh, at times in his life. You know, just a little glimpse of that. Um, so I, I think always... Less is more, yeah, and yeah. and that's certainly applicable to Howard during that part of it. I don't want to give any spoilers, but there's mm. lots of beautiful moments in it. But there's one particular beautiful moment, and let's just say there's dry cleaning involved, and the movie somewhat pivots on that. It, mm. It's a beautiful scene. Yes, it is. It is pivotal because it's it's a, a physical representation of this man's life mm. that was tired 
and worn and past any use. Yeah. And it changes into something else. Yeah. And that's the physical representation of it. Breed, talking of beautiful moments, there's a gorgeous scene, possibly halfway through, in the graveyard when much is revealed and, and, and it's a beautiful moment and we get a sense, more than any other point in the movie up to that point, of what's taken these two people to where they are. Was there a lot of emotion in that one for you? No, but it's interesting because we talked, we had a very luxurious week of round a table in um, Kielty's restaurant on Ackle before we actually started shooting. During which time uh, um, James and Catherine Walker and Klaus Harrow and and Mm. myself sat around talking and uh, talking about the script and the characters and reading a little. And we talked about that scene. And uh, indeed, I think there was more said in the scene initially and um, I think that's one of those points where James and I both agreed that less said. Yeah. Um, and we had a, it was an opportunity, we had an opportunity to explore it before we actually shot it, quite a few weeks before that, okay. because the um, cinematographer and Klaus, Robert Muller and Klaus, the director, wanted to have a look at the graveyard where we shot it. So during that rehearsal week, we went out there and we set it up and it was, so it was great because James and I had a feel for it then. Mm. And what we talked about, there was less of it. It was just intimated, Mm. those stories about history um, that doesn't really need to be overstated, I think, because clearly you got it and, you know, lots of people got it. So we, you know, it was right that we didn't. But I think also um, one of the glories of Klaus's filmmaking is that he is a real uh, storyteller, s- filmic storyteller, because he he does show you things like the dry cleaning. Mm-hmm. We don't need to go into that in huge mm-hmm. detail or to discuss it. You saw it and you see it, and it speaks to you yeah. cinem- cinematically. Yeah. It's very beautiful. Yeah. It certainly is. James, I was surprised mm-hmm. when I realised it was a Finnish director uh, because I was thinking when I read about it, this is an Irish movie because I heard it was based on Ackle but it's a very universal story and there's I'm delighted to say for listeners there was no hint of paddy whackery or pigs in the kitchen or any of that stuff and I presume that was your sense of it as well when you knew you were going to the west of Ireland but there's no real Irishisms in it no it's a story that that, um, is applicable anywhere really Mm -hmm. it's about it's about human relationships and as Breed said you know that could be it could be in Alaska. It yeah. could be anywhere. Mm. It's it's about people and how they yeah. they struggle with life and sometimes find love. Yeah. That said, it is beautifully set. I don't want to do any disservice to the people no, or the place no. of Ackle, but it looks absolutely gorgeous. And oh. the house that you all inhabit for most of it. That's I presume someone's going to be trying to buy that noon after they see this. It has been bought. In fact, ah, the people okay. who bought it, and I think it had been. Uh, left uninhabited for some time but the people who bought it and intend to do it up it may well be a completely changed building by now a year and a half after we shot there but they allowed the filming before they actually started and work so it was in a very interesting condition and we had a obviously a great um, designer John Hand who mm. could transform the place into this you know a place full of history and story with it was just it was an extraordinary house really yeah, yeah it was one of the main characters in the mm. film yeah Absolutely. That and the, the vista that it, mm-hmm. you know, those huge skies and the mm-hmm. sea out there. Yeah. And there's, in a way, not for me to explain the movie to you guys, but my take of it was when your characters start to appreciate the vista together, that's again another turning point in the mm-hmm. movie, you know. James, you know, on the way in here, I was just reminding myself of all you'd done over the years. And I was I was nearly getting tired reading of it because there's so, so much. And it Believe goes me, back... a lot of people are tired of watching me. I believe there's petitions starting now. Saying, I certainly I won't started, be signing it. I started that petition, it. <laughs> No, but usually you go down through someone's bio and you're like, oh yeah, this, this. But it goes on and on and on, all the way back to things in Ireland like Braveheart, oh, then yeah. the person who unfortunately got feces on them and train spotting at a breakfast table yeah. right up into <laughs> Game of Thrones like you yeah. have literally yeah. spanned the generations yeah. what's I know it's a kind of obtuse question but what's the secret to your longevity as an actor because you started in the 60s yeah I, I did yeah um uh, I think the inability to earn a living at doing anything else had a lot to do with it um I didn't have much choice but to be absolutely honest 
I, I've never had a career plan. I've never decided to go this way mm. or that way. I just trust in fate that it's going to, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I've, I've been, I've been hugely blessed by that and had a, a wonderfully diverse career and, and life, which I'm eternally grateful for. But uh, no, I, I, I certainly don't have anything that, that I, I, I love what I do. I, mm. I love that moment when you are in the moment mm. and when they say cut and you feel pleased with that. Yeah. And that's a great feeling. And yeah. I don't think I'll ever get rid of that. I always want to do that. I want to die on the set. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. But the, the Game of Thrones thing, yeah. uh, because that was adored and I'm sure in every corner of the world. Did that change your life significantly? Like just even in terms of recognition that people would go, oh, of all ages, that's the guy. I, I was amazed by the, 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 the level of, of success and the, and the depth that people felt about all the characters in that. It was, yeah. it was an extraordinary thing yeah. uh, to have happened, you yeah. know. Um, but I, I do think that that's of notoriety. I've, I've always regarded that as the sort of... Um, uh, the the collateral damage from your job. Yeah. You know. Yeah. My job is, our job is to portray characters mm -hmm. on the screen. The collateral damage is that, or the collateral effect is that a lot of people know you, but that doesn't, you know, they don't they don't know me. They just recognise yeah. the character. That's all. Breed, I to this day have vivid memories of the whole series of Cracker uh, and I've waxed lyrical to people on this station about what a wonderful piece of writing that was by Jimmy McGovern and of course the late great uh, uh, Robbie Coltrane who, who passed away recently but for people who don't know you played I think it was in the sixth installment of it and that uh, a, a woman who's at the pin of her collar because she's finding it hard to feed her children and then finds out that her husband is visiting prostitutes and it takes an incredibly dark turn and your character does incredible performance. Back then, you know, we, we hadn't seen too much of that stuff where a woman takes control of the situation, albeit in a very questionable way and becomes, a, 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 you know, a murderer uh, for people who haven't seen it. At the time when you got the script, was, was it a shocking read to you? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, maybe it wasn't, but I remember seeing that. I was probably far too young to be watching at the time, but being shocked by that whole series. But that, your character was one of the shocking characters in it, I remember. I have to admit, I would have, I wanted to resist that because I did find it shocking and okay. I'm, I'm not great on violence and, yeah. um, and I thought that was particularly shocking uh, and I wanted to wriggle out, I have to say, at the time. But it was as my husband said, well, if it was a Greek, uh, classic Greek play and, uh, you know, you're mm. playing a woman who kills her two children and, you know, poisons mm. her husband's new wife, you wouldn't stop, you wouldn't stop to think, you'd do it. You'd yeah. play Medea, you'd mm. do, and yeah. horrible things he said happen. And, and he said, you know, he was saying, and the quality of the writing is such that, you know, it's not, it's not just a titillating or, you know, sort of gratuitous. It's something that Jimmy McGovern obviously thinks about. And, yeah. and he does obviously go to very dark places. And he is a really, really great writer. And then quite a few years after that, then I had the chance to do something that Jimmy had written, although he claimed he just listened to people and put it down. And that was about Bloody Sunday, mm -hmm. a, a television film yeah. called just called a uh, Sunday I remember, yeah. and um, and they came to me about that but I was very very glad to be able to do that um, and again Jimmy's sensitivity and you know his great ear and his empathy with people is very important to that so mm -hmm. yes I, I'm glad I did it although I I did worry I mean you worry about with those sort of gory you know and pretty cruel parts I have worry about imitators or people sure. who it influences to an alarming degree you know because there is some responsibility sure. in you know in acting and um so i i've but i i did enjoy this and I, I knew robbie before and i loved working with him yeah. on that so there was a lot to be got out of it as well and james uh you were here well you've been here many times mm. but for that movie that seemed to you know, kickstart or certainly continue the, the, the transition of Ireland into a, a serious movie player with Braveheart yeah. and Mel Gibson. What was it like being directed by Mel Gibson? 
it, it was a really interesting experience. I mean, it's a long time ago. I know. 20, 28 years or something. It's people like me who bring it up. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it is one of those films that has a longevity yes. to it. It's, a, it's constantly fresh. You know, lots of young younger people come up and say, God, I just yeah. watched Braveheart, you know? And it, so it does uh, retain its, its impact. But but the, the things, the, the two things that I can remember were that, that Mel was very smart. He surrounded himself with hugely talented people. John Toll, mm-hmm. three-time Oscar winner for cinematography. Mm-hmm. The, the late uh, David Tomlin, the best first assistant director that ever walked this okay. earth. First director on Gandhi, Indiana, all of them, all yeah. the big movies. He had Dave, and I, I'd known Dave since I was eighteen, and when he was just starting out as well. And so he had he had he had the best surrounding him, so he could concentrate on doing the very difficult job of acting and directing, mm-hmm. um, which was exhausting. Yeah. But there was one instance that that really said it all to me that you know the connection between an actor and a director. We were, we were going to shoot my death scene with uh, Brendan Gleeson and, and Mel. And it was after lunch, just the, the scene after lunch. So we're at lunch and he said, uh, I was too nervous to eat. I was walking up and down. And he came up and he said, hey, Jimmy, he said, uh, What's, what do you think is the cheapest thing in this set? I said, the, he said, the cheapest. I said, uh, no, I have no idea. What, what? <laughs> He said, the cheapest thing in this set is the celluloid in that camera. Now, you use as much as you want to use. <laughs> now, that is a really clever way. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, I thought, I can have this crew standing here all afternoon <laughs> shooting this scene. I immediately calmed down. I was able to concentrate it. You do it in two takes, bang, that's it, move that's on. Yeah, you know? But it was it was a really clever psychological yeah. and he was also very, very generous. Uh he he wanted everyone to get the shot. Okay. You know, it wasn't it wasn't all about Mel Gibson. It yeah. certainly wasn't. Okay. And I know that he's had his problems as as we all have. We all but, have. But he's a he's a very decent man. He's a good man. And then just just finally then, you know, I was talking about your longevity and maybe this mm. is amateur Freudianism and I'm not the first person to suggest it, but uh, your father was an actor. Yes. And it, it, it's kind of unusual it, for that time that you, it seems to me unusual that you followed your dad into it, but maybe it made perfect sense. But I wonder the fact that you saw him, I presume, occasionally struggle to get parts. Has that strengthened your backbone? Oh, absolutely. You know, people say, well, how did your dad help you? My dad couldn't help me. He was, he was a working actor. Mm. You know, he wasn't going to say, oh, I'll get you a part, don't worry. He was worried about getting himself a part, you know. But the one thing that it gave me was, you're absolutely right. I I, I remember seeing my dad sitting with his hands in his head because he hadn't got a job and we needed to pay the rent. Mm. And so I I knew the territory. I didn't go into acting thinking, oh, it's all going to be premieres and fun and pretty girl I know it's 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 not going to be like that you know you better learn how to wait table you better learn how to serve behind a bar and you better know the right end of a pickaxe because you'll be doing a lot more of that than you will acting but for an actor that's a good thing because the more you're out there with a pickaxe and a shovel or serving someone in a restaurant you're observing you're observing the human condition and it's all going in there and that's building up that bank of experience that you can you can bring to parts even subconsciously mm. you 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 bring it to your art so for young actors to go out and do anything to earn a living brilliant just don't sit and be an actor yeah. an out of work actor that's the worst thing you can do because <laughs> yeah. that's what you'll continue to be an out of work actor sage advice Bree you're nodding in agreement I presume you agree with all of that yeah and beautifully articulated as yeah. well that's bang on because yeah. it is about life and if you haven't got a store of having lived and if you don't go out and you know feed yourself yeah. from life 
you, you have very little to bring then yeah. to well, the that might be a new ringtone for one of my friends who's an actor <laughs> so I might use that uh, My Sailor My Love is delightful and it was lovely to talk to you both thanks a million yeah, thank, thank you it's you. been a thank great you. pleasure James Cosmo and Breed Brown in there talking to me about all sorts of things and they are starring in My Sailor My Love which is in cinemas from the 10th of March that's next Friday a delightful movie it really is uh, beautiful cinematography in as well of the sea uh, this gorgeous house out in Iraq, even though it's not really Irish at all, if you know what I mean, as you heard me saying there. Well worth a watch. Definitely worth going to see in the cinema. Up next, Mick Clifford on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to our slot now where we talk to a person of note about their favourite movie. And talking of people of note, this man has many notes. One of Ireland's best known journalists and perhaps its leading investigative journalist, Mick Clifford, joins me now. Mick, thank you for coming into studio. Steady on with the introduction there, John. No, you're not. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So your favourite movie, I'm always intrigued. I rang you and like that you didn't need any time really to think about it tell our listeners what it is and why my favourite movie is Fargo Mm -hmm. Uh, why and I was actually wondering why after you rang me John to be fair and do you know what I came up with tone Uh, okay the the, the tone of the movie that combination of America to the extent you have the wholesomeness as personified by uh, Francis McDormand's character the sheriff you have the profane you have the criminal element you have money so Mm -hmm. much of it is about chasing this money and the mixture of it all then Minnesota and I have to say like the accents really did it for me I mean I understand they were exaggerated to some extent yes and underpinning the whole thing my favourite genre of anything is black comedy Okay, and there's a lot of black comedy there certainly that. is just remind people and younger listeners I know it's a kind of complex plot but give us the top line of what happens in Fargo top line is uh, this man uh, William Macy's character who's married into money he, yes. he's a car salesman himself he's married into money he desperately wants to, the, the big win the big amount of money he comes up with a solution um, he's going to get his wife uh, organised to have his wife kidnapped there will be a ransom from her father he'll split that with the kidnappers mm-hmm. he gets a tip off from a fellow in the garage where he's working about guys this guy knew in prison he goes up to Fargo I think is the place he actually yeah. meets them in North Dakota he organises this thing they come down they kidnap her uh, they make off with her and then they're stopped at this place Baynard which apparently is a, has its own reason for being famous there between one thing and another they end up shooting dead three people mm-hmm. and that's where Francis McDormand the local Sheriff comes into it. She's pregnant. She's married to a guy who's an artist, and they're they're the epitome of wholesome America to the extent. And this is the beautiful part about it. Like as a couple and everything around them, some people would, on first viewing, consider them gormless. Yes, but actually they're not at all. They just have that kind of wholesomeness, American kind of thing that we we consider. Well, some of us perhaps we'd be a bit cynical about it, but you have all of that in there, and then you have performances, as I say, Francis McDormand, yeah. fantastic, Steve Buscemi as one of the kidnappers. He's never bad, Steve. Buscemi. He's never bad, but I have to say, William Macy is fantastic yeah. because he plays that guy on edge, mm-hmm. and his life unraveling. He plays it brilliantly. He does that so brilliantly, doesn't oh, he? Yeah. And when the yeah. guy's looking for the serial numbers, and his life has fallen apart, and you you really feel for him, even though he's made a terrible mistake. Absolutely, and there's one particular scene where he's in with the father-in-law and he's pitching this deal and the father-in-law walks away with the deal without giving it to him and he comes out and he realises he's after organising for his wife to be kidnapped and he's there in the snow and he's trying to take the snow off his car and suddenly bang he just loses it and begins whacking it and I I just I I, I don't know how many times I've watched it I I still go back to it the odd time I think it's fantastic and uh, anyone will know you're well known for having covered plenty of crime in your journalistic career this is very much as well as being a black comedy a crime story does that appeal to you or oh it does always yeah yeah I mean crime appeals to me it's visceral you know I mean it's there the victim's a crime Mm -hmm. you know it's something I, I, I've written a lot about prisons and yeah. that uh, what drives people to perpetrate it all that kind of thing and the detection you know yeah. I mean, the standard cop thing but um, this particular element of it as well you see it's the crime who gets involved in the crime William Macy the car salesman yeah. wants to make it big and you're back to that 
well, it used to be a unique American thing. You see a lot of here now. The, the, the white collar crimes the other thing the relationship between himself and the kidnappers yes. he goes to these guys he thinks he's involved in a business transaction he doesn't realise it's going to be completely out of his control once he makes the first move at all brilliantly evoked and I, I feel like watching it as you talk <laughs> about it and I completely agree with you about Frances McDormand because people misjudge her as in her character as being a bit dim but she's a brilliant yeah. cop small little tale about Francis McDonald come on yeah uh, mate of mine well he's a brother of a mate of mine I won't name here but very much involved in the acting business years and years ago found himself in the play with Francis McDormand in New York his father came over from Cork you know a big deal and he saw yeah. the play they go out for dinner next thing she walks into the restaurant she comes over chats to him and the whole thing and the end of the meal uh, they go up to pay and they're told Miss McDormand has taken care of it now it's a small gesture but somehow I, I get the impression she's that type you know? she seems like a good egg ah, yeah, yeah, she, does. she, yeah, she really yeah. does she really does listen uh, brilliant choice Fargo I've never been chosen in the four years or the near four years I've been doing this I'm show I'm sorry it took me so long to get to you you know <laughs> <laughs> tell me this I mentioned you being and of course you're with the Irish Examiner now Port, we say that but investigative journalism like I'm fascinated by it in a way in that like journalism radio these jobs can take over your life a bit uh, you know you, you think about them it's, it can be hard to switch off with investigating a story though it must be that must really take over your life when you're working on something big and whoever's employing you has given you you know the latitude to work away on it I'm sure it's more than a Newman night yeah no I'd have to say John people talk about investigative journalism I, my and you're talking about movies and that maybe it's because of my interpretation of my mm-hmm. view of what an investigative journalist yeah. is I don't feel like an investigative journalist um, not my image of what an investigative okay. journalist is but yes to the extent I do a lot of stuff that does not involve the daily grindy journalism or reporting what ministers are going to say or what have you or, or, or reporting basically what's happening in the criminal world be true contacts with yeah. the, the guards or whatever but it does like, it can take over your life and you can lose sleep over it yeah. but as I've often said um, bits the hell out of working for a living you know? <laughs> well I think you're worried I'm comparing you to Magnum P.I. or something <laughs> tip offs no, none of the sort listen you have a podcast imaginatively titled The Mick Clifford Podcast <laughs> you must have been up nights thinking that I'm only joking but I, by all accounts it's doing quite well uh, in the podcast ah, yeah. what do you do in that? basically just interview people okay. uh, right across the spectrum Whether it, often people who write a book people mm-hmm. from politics recently an opera singer uh all sorts of people, okay. really, you know, whomever they get the you, you come across. This is it, yeah, 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 exactly. Like, you know, they come in, we have a chat, and uh, hopefully people get something out of it. Yes, and then finally, you, like, plenty of journalists have tried your hand twice at uh, novel writing, as in uh, fiction, uh, yeah. two crime novels. Yeah. Was that hard work? Was it a joy to do because you were able to put down the investigative journalist title? Did you enjoy that process? I did, do you know, I've heard people say this and I didn't appreciate it till I did it. In one way, yes, there's a, the element you enjoy is when you get something right. Mm-hmm. But Christ, you, 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 you go through a lot of okay. uh, grief to get there. But that's what drives you on. If you're asking me in general, I, I, uh, I would love the idea. I, I would love to have the talent to be a crime novelist, somebody who could earn a living from... Because, you know, I, I enjoy crime fiction and I enjoy the idea of writing fiction. I wrote two novels. One of them, I think, was good enough. The yeah. second one, you usually get a two-book deal, probably wasn't that great. It's something I would love to have a crack at again. All I can say about the ones that came out, John, is I think at this stage the world does not yet appreciate my genius as a crime novelist, you know? Give it time, give it time. <laughs> his favourite movie is Fargo. He's the special correspondent with The Examiner. You can hear his podcast, which is weekly, the Mick Clifford podcast, weekly, yeah. on uh, all good podcast platforms. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Sean. Here's the second one. It's in the head and the hand there. I guess that's a defensive wound. Oh, yeah. Where's the state trooper? Back there, a good piece in the ditch next to his prowler. Okay, so we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high-speed pursuit, ends here, and then this execution-type deal. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd. Yeah. A clip there from Fargo, one of the Coen brothers' best. Is it the best? The Miller's Crossing is great. Barton Fink is great. There's a lot of great... 
Cohen brother movies. And of course, there's The Big Lebowski. So let's not get into that now. But Fargo is an incredible film. And my thanks to Mick Clifford, who kindly chatted to me in studio about his favourite film, which was Fargo. That is it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show. You can get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Slán August Bannacht.